Hey everyone and welcome back to my Blackadian universe. Today I continue my conversation with Solrak on uh, um, the Harlem Renaissance and so uh, it's a great conversation we're having about uh, American history, black history, and uh, the Harlem Renaissance is so important uh, because it helped shape um, the black identity, uh, f transforming it from the identity that was painted by, um, you know, Jim Crow and, uh, transformed it into something wonderful and new and powerful. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. It's a great talk and we're focusing today on influential dancers. So please enjoy. be able to take you on this journey um, and I've been enjoying it so far what we've been talking about going through history I'm a history buff so I guess it's kind of advantageous for me to talk about these things yes so I'm grateful that we're back again and I'm also as always I'm grateful for you sharing your platform um, that way we can talk about the Harlem Renaissance and educate the people and at the same time entertain them as well Yes, anytime. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so um, just want to get started. Um, just want to do basically a recap. Mm -hmm. um, as we stated from the very beginning of this series or the series prior to that, where we was talking about the Great Migration, 90% uh, African-Americans, um, they settled in the South and due to Jim Crow laws and harsh treatment and limited unemployment opportunities, uh, they moved they moved elsewhere. Uh, most of them settled. They moved to northern states, the Midwest, but most of a good percentage of them settled in Harlem. We had within a three mile radius, there was 175,000 blacks, which created an opportunity for us to create a new identity. As we mentioned before, remember, we had all of the different imagery or the, the stereotypical ideologies that was out there when it related to Blacks or African-American people. And part of that was to degrade us, desexualize us, dehumanize us. I could add some more of these if needed. But <laughs> over, over, over the overall objective was to demean us so that way we won't um, be able to see any value in ourselves and is a means of keeping us second-class citizens. So through the Harlem through the Harlem Renaissance, we were able to create a new identity. And that new identity was cemented through different genres, uh, different thought processes. Uh, one of the ways that we began to create that new identity was through writers that wrote during the Harlem Renaissance. Some of the famous ones would be Zora Neale Hurston, and of course, Langston Hughes, as well as others. And then we continued to build that legacy through the musicians. Uh, we started out with jazz musicians, uh, some of them being Louis Armstrong, one of the famous ones. And then we also talked about some of the blues musicians, which will be Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith. And so we just wanted to, we took you through those different genres of those building blocks, just so you can kind of follow along as we navigate this story and take you on a journey. Uh, you can continue to keep your seatbelt because this will be a nice and comfortable ride. And so just wanted to kind of go over that. So going forward, we're going to talk about the dancers that were influential in the Harlem Renaissance. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So that's where we're going to go start off today. Um, but one of the things I want to talk about, too, I was looking at some of my notes and I was just it's just amazing how things come together mm-hmm. whenever we look at the Hall of Renaissance, one of them being Storyville, which was, you know, uh, a, a place which was mostly where jazz began um, mm-hmm. or jazz as we knew it originally before it became jazz. Uh, but in that particular place, there was so much going on, but it was done in the most unlikely areas, um, bars and brothels. Uh, who would think that the birth of a music genre would begin there? But I parallel with hip hop because hip hop in its, you know, in its origin began mm-hmm. in the in the ghetto or some would say the hood. So mm-hmm. all of these things. So sometimes you can never overlook a starting point in life because some of the most unlikely, some of the greatest things can come from the most unlikely places. And Absolutely. so, so I wanted to talk or mention that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's one of the things that we can be mindful of. Um, also, I want to make a quick plug. Um, my new single came out this week, um, Belly of the Beast, dealing with mass incarceration. So if you have an opportunity, you like conscious hip hop or you like hip hop that opens up your mind and mm-hmm. um, deal with social issues, definitely cop that or get that on yeah. um, all the musical platforms. So I wanted to mention that so that way people were aware that is out while we're before we get into the dig deep today basically yes thank you for mentioning it you beat me to it but uh oh yeah (laughs) it's a great track everyone please listen uh it's a great great uh great song and uh expands your mind and you know it's also sounds great so yeah please check it out and not only check that out continue to follow blockadian um podcasts um even when we're not doing the hall of renaissance there's some wonderful topics um, I listen to them, so and not only myself, but I listen to it when I'm not on it because it's a good podcast. So continue to listen to it, continue to support it, uh, because we have to uplift our people. Uh, we want to definitely show support by listening and tuning in. So I want to make sure I, I mention that as well. Thank um, you. Mm-hmm, because it's, it's worthy of your time, it's worthy of a listen, and it's worthy of a share. So share with your friends, family. And get everybody to check it out because it's definitely uh, one of the premier podcasts out there because it's dealing with issues that nobody wants to talk about. And I'm grateful that she has a brave voice and willing to share it with the people. So I'm grateful for what you're doing. Okay. All right. So as we talk about blues, uh, Mm -hmm. blues basically was originating in the deep South. Uh, It started around the 1870s because it dealt with, it it was rooted in African music traditions, uh, African-American work songs and spirituals. Um, And to, and we're still in the recap. I just want to kind of talk about blues because I didn't really touch on it too much. I just kind of named the person. But um, so blues was, was one of those things where it often, the first appearance of blues is awfully dated, often dated after the end of slavery and later developed in the juke joints. Um, mm-hmm. It was associated with the newly acquired freedom for former slaves. So blues is basically a way that music as a whole is a way that people express themselves. Um, there mm-hmm. were different there were different variations of blues, but all of it had its point. And one of the persons that we talked about before was Alonzo Lonnie Johnson, who was instrumental because he was one of the first ones to play an electronically amplified violin and the pioneer of jazz, guitar and jazz violin. So he was very, 
a very influential person during the um, blues period and Ma Rainey, who was Bill, the mother of the blues. Um, in fact, Bessie Smith, who was coined the Empress of the Blues, was almost was pretty much a, a um, protege of Ma Rainey. And if any of you like Queen Latifah, she plays Bessie Smith on, um, you can watch that on HBO or some other um, networks. Just in case you didn't want to read the book, you can always see like a <laughs> movie form of cinema version of it. And that way you kind of get some history of who Bessie Smith was. Uh, but she was regarded one of the greatest singers of her era as a major influence and to fellow blues singers as well as jazz vocalists. So she was a very, very popular. In fact, she's one of the most popular female blues singers of the 1920s and 1930s, referring to Bessie Smith. All right. So as we move on, we're going to talk about the influential dancers during the Harlem Renaissance because dance, sometimes I feel like dance is not really given the same level of respect mm. as music because, mm. you know, we look at music, okay, well, music, it entertains me because I can listen to it, I can yeah. sing it, but dancing is more visual than anything because you have to see what they're doing versus just hearing what they're doing or you know, you have to see it in order to really appreciate it. Not saying that one who cannot see it cannot enjoy it, but for the most part, um, that's where people seem to grab the most from it. Um, but just to kind of touch on one of the, I say, key figures in blue, I mean, in dancing was um, Bill Robinson, or some would call him Mr. Bojangles. Um, some of y'all might have heard of the restaurant, but it was actually a person by the name of. <laughs> <laughs> given that name as well. <laughs> so, you know, it, it was um, Bill Robinson. And he was, in my opinion, there are two that I'm going to talk about today, but he is one of the top um, tap dancers ever. Uh, he was an actor and a singer. And uh, he was best known and mostly high paid black entertainer in America during the first half of the 20th century. Some people know him from dancing with Shirley Temple. Um, mm -hmm. And because of the, I guess you'll say, he seemed to fit into the racial stereotypes of that era. Some of the mm -hmm. critics considered him an Uncle Tom, or as I would call it, a Sambo, uh, which, of course, he resented this criticism. And, you know, it was a, he felt it was a mischaracterization mm -hmm. of who he was. But I want to talk about what he actually contributed off the stage and on stage, because I do feel like he was... Uh, mischaracterized to a certain point because he did do a lot of things for African-American people that we may not even be aware of. And I wanted to highlight it in this series because he's so popular. I feel like people somewhat know who he is. So it's not a need to re, you know, uh, reinvent the wheel. I'll talk about him, some of the more popular points, but I do want to talk about what he did as far as for the African-American community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I just want to say like one of the things that, he did. Uh, he used his popularity to overcome uh, numerous racial barriers, including being one of the first minstrel and Bonneville performers to appear without the use of blackface makeup. So that was because mm. some people, when they think about blackface, you know, I wrote a song about it. So most people think that it was only white people that were wearing uh, blackface, but there were black people that wore it too to perform in blackface. Mm. Of course, the motivation may have been different for either for either culture, but it was done. Yes. We don't want to overlook that either. Mm. But one, the other thing he did, he was the earliest black performer to go solo because one of the rules in Bonneville was that they, had, they call it the two-colored rule. 
And basically what it meant, you have to have two performers at the same time. No one can go solo whenever they performed in it. Um, he was the first person to appear in a Hollywood film in an interracial dance team. And we knew that through the films that he did with Shirley Temple. And also he was the first black form performer to headline a mixed race Broadway production and the headline Broadway show. So those are some of the things that he did that were on stage. Um, mm -hmm. But as far as off stage, he persuaded the Dallas Police Department to hire his first black policeman. Uh, he lobbied Franklin D. Roosevelt during World War II for more equitable treatment of black soldiers. And he staged the first integrated public event in Miami. A fundraiser was attended by both black and white residents. So he did a lot of things on mm -hmm. and off stage that was used to propel the black culture. I wanted him to be his legacy to be seen more than just smiling and grinning with Shirley Temple <laughs> because he did more than that. Yeah, it's absolutely true. Like the first thing I think people do think of if you know his name is, you know, that iconic image of him dancing with Shirley Temple. Mm -hmm. But it's great to mention that he did use his, uh, you know, celebrity or, you know, power at the time to try and help, um, you know, other uh, black people, which is a, a big, you know, part of, you're right, his legacy. So mm -hmm. hopefully... You know, people know that about him too. Absolutely, absolutely. And the other duet or team that was well known, and I felt that, in my opinion, they were the best duo ever. I mean, these guys were just phenomenal. Um, the Nicholas Brothers, which was out for Yard and Harold, and one of them married Dorothy Danger. So I'm a little upset about that, but <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> but he married her. You know, he wasn't. You know, he wasn't able to keeper because he his eyes was on other things more so than her but at the end of the day if you get what i mean uh but yeah. you know at the end of the day he did marry her which was you know she was a of course she was a beautiful woman a talented person it's unfortunate how she passed away but she was very talented mm -hmm. in singing, singing and dancing and she was just born to be an entertainer i mean it's just some people they just have that calling on them and i think she was one of them i think they were as well because they um they performed um, a highly acrobatic technique known as flash dancing with a high level artistry and daring and innovations. And they were considered by many, by many to be the greatest tap dancers of their day, which I wouldn't disagree. I mean, if you ever saw um, their, the, the, the um, final stage or final scene in Stormy Weather, that dance routine they did was like blows you out of the water. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, one of their signature moves was the leapfrog where they leaped down a long, broad flight of stairs while completing each step with a split. Which, you know, I don't know how they did it because I know I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, they'd have to have uh, emergency medical personnel on, st <laughs> on standby for me. Yeah. yeah so uh, when I look at it, it's like, I mean, this is, they did, the movie was like in 1943. So that's like almost what, 60, 67 years ago, perhaps. Um, just, you know, mm -hmm. estimate here. But that's like, you know, that's over a generation ago. And I'm still blown yeah. away by it today. Yeah. So yeah. these guys was way beyond their time. And they also was good at when they did the splits, they would get up from the split uh, without even using their hands. And, mm. you know, and that's amazing within itself. And a lot of times, you know, in our, in our generation, you know, a little bit before our time we had, you know, I, I, you know, I like the dance move of Michael Jackson, Prince. And of mm -hmm. course, I like Chris Brown. 
and we had James Brown, you know, that's a little before our time, but we had James Brown at least in mm-hmm. the 60s. But these guys was doing something like that. I don't even think, even in my, even to this point, I can't even think of a dancer that did the type of scene they did in Stormy Weather. I can't even think of one. There may be one, but I'm not aware of anyone that did that type of routine. But, um, yep. you know, and, and, and that routine, when it was in Stormy Weather, they leaped across the orchestra music stands and danced on top of the grand piano in a call of response act with the pianist to the tune of what was called Jump and Jive. These guys were so good mm-hmm. that even Fred, Fred Astaire once told the brothers that this dance number they did was the greatest movie musical scene he ever seen. Now, this is Fred Astaire, who was considered, you know, in other cultures as a premier um, dancer. So he had great respect mm-hmm. for what they did. So he was, um, you know, the guys with this phenomenal. And I would recommend anyone to see Stormy Weather or look at any film that the Nicholas Brothers were in because they was like, mm-hmm. acro, you know, high-flying type dancing that to this day, I don't think anyone duplicated as of yet. I mean, there was mm-hmm. people that were great dancers at at this at that time, like we can't forget about, I think it's Savian Glover. Uh, we can't forget about um, what is Gregory Hines who played um, Bill Robinson in the movie called Mr. Bojangles or Bojangles, if you want to look at that film. And he did one of Bill Robinson's famous dances, which is the step dance where he tap dance up a, um, a cape well upstairs and then down like he went up a I can't think of the word right now slipping my mind but he went up and down a, some you know makeshift platform which was set up like stairs and he did it and you know um, Gregory Hines did it so it was awesome that he replicated that but these guys were just beyond their time like I said you know they're beyond their time and you know I, I feel in a way we're lucky because of what we have as far as music and I'm grateful for hip hop and what we accomplished with, you know, the different music in our era, EDM, um, Neo Soul, and all that stuff. I'm grateful for our music. But I felt like these people, in the way they were robbed because of the racism they had to deal with and, you know, the lack of opportunities they had to deal with. And you had to be phenomenal just to even get the level of exposure they got. Like today, you can be decent. And if you got a good social media game and you're able to, you know, get opportunities and you know the right people, you can get exposure. But back then, it was like you had to be like, you blow people's mind just to even have the opportunity. So, Absolutely. I think uh, one of my favorite uh, Chris Rock jokes was just about, you know, how, you know, he had to obviously beat incredible odds to be, you know, a comedian Mm -hmm. and, you know, gain his wealth and then he said you know the guy that lives next door to him he's a dentist and so <laughs> it just sort of you know, it's just like you know it just shows you know the levels that uh you know out you know black people have to go to mm-hmm. and then versus especially and that was you know current day i can't imagine back uh you know 60 70 years ago so. yeah and you're right and i don't want to overlook the fact that the battle still continues though we still struggle against oh, yeah. oppression we still struggle against racism we still struggle for opportunities especially economic opportunities um but that's definitely <laughs> something that we'll discuss because that's something that we need to just, uh, really dive into and i know you've been doing an excellent job talking about things that's been going on in your country but even what you're dealing with also translates to what we're dealing with because at the end of the day racism is not bound by country it's global so so you can't yeah. so we all deal with it we may deal with it in different levels we may deal with it, it may stem from different situations and you know racism is not just um based on what we deal with as african americans or canadian americans or africans 
Uh, it's also indigenous people. There are people who deal with it. Latino people deal with racism. So we just have to bear those things in mind as we deal with the subject matter because it's expensive. It's inclusive. Also, it's inclusive, but it's all it's also exclusive as far as experiences. Um, yes. But also, I want to talk about Josephine Baker. Um, she was born in the United States, but she became naturalized in French. Uh, in France, I'm mm-hmm. saying France. Sorry, I said French, <laughs> but she was French as far as the, her nationality yeah. as it changed over. Um, but Baker, Baker, she was she was a wonderful singer and a dancer. But I think sometimes people don't even realize her level of you know intellectualism and her ability to sway people through dance. Um, she was celebrated by artists and intellectuals of the era, and she was you know dubbed. The Black Venus or the Black Black Pearl, or the Bronze Venus and the Creole Goddess. Uh, she uh, she was born in St. Louis, Missouri, and eventually, like I said, she um, became French uh, a French national. Well, she married a French national um, or a French industrialist by the name of Jean Lyon in 1937. But one thing I want to talk about because I don't want to rehash things people may be familiar with. I kind of want to touch on things that they may not be familiar with just to kind of bring a broader perspective of the people that we're talking about. Uh, but she was involved in the French resistance during World War II. So she was involved in, you know, things that you wouldn't think of as an entertainer. She didn't, she didn't just focus on herself, but she utilized her ability. She utilized her, her, her uh, passion and did something about it. She just wanted the people that just sat back and say, I'm not going to get involved. I'm going to make a difference. Different, excuse me. And although she was based in France, Baker supported the civil rights movement during the 1950s um, when she arrived in New York with her husband. She refused to, she refused reservations at 36 hotels because of racial discrimination. And she was so upset mm-hmm. by the treatment that she wrote articles about segregation in the United States. Now she wasn't living here at the time. So she could have just been like, hey, that's what they're dealing with over here. I'm in France. I'm living mm-hmm. it up. Mm-hmm. Hey, you guys deal with that over <laughs> there. I don't want to deal with that. Or risk losing because some artists were unwilling to deal with racial issues because they were afraid that they would lose their white audience or they would lose their opportunity, you know, economically. And so I admire these artists that stood up against, you know, racial oppression and that fought for the civil rights mm-hmm. movement because they took a risk economically uh, by doing it. You know, it wasn't something mm-hmm. popular at the time you know now you, i mean mm-hmm. we deal with things now and yes we do have some resistance but during that time you know it was nothing for a person to tell you hey you need to go to the colored water fountain or to you know if you mm-hmm. go and see a movie you got to go to the colored section and of course i admire their bravery and using their voice as well as their platform to challenge these things that were status quo because it, it was a chance that they were taking um, to bring attention to it. And mm-hmm. like I said before, and, and in fact, Josephine Baker was so much of an influential person. Um, in 1968, she was even offered unofficial leadership in the movement uh, by Coretta Scott King after Martin Luther King's death. Uh, but after thinking about it, of course, she declined out of concern for the welfare of her children. Mm-hmm. But she was seen that much of a person that even um, Martin Luther King's widows, Coretta Scott King, considered her having to be a person to lead the civil rights movement at the time. So that, that lets you know how much of a voice she had 
and what type of light other people seen her in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, you know, if you're not able to read the book or you want to dive deeper um, about Josephine Baker, there's also a movie that came out in 1991 called Baker's Life Story, what ba- which, excuse me, which emphasized uh, her life story, which is called the Josephine Baker story. And it came through on HBO, um, Lynn Whitfield, she portrayed Baker. And, and so if you ever wanted to learn something more about her in a more cinematic version, the movie is a good way to go if you're not willing to read any articles or anything of that nature. But more importantly, listen to this podcast because this is one of the best <laughs> ways to get the information. And we do it in this bite-sized way so that way you're not oversaturated with information, but you can take it, study, come back and get more. And on that note, I'll go ahead and end it today. But I do want to mention that next week we're going to continue to talk about influential dancers during the Harlem Renaissance. And basically, the theme behind everything we're doing is that we're talking about the Harlem Renaissance because it was one of the ways that we were able to create a new identity, breaking away from the Jim Crow laws that were in the South. And once again, we thank you for joining us. And we thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, thank you so much, uh, Soul Rock. Be sure, everyone, to please, please, please uh, check out his uh, new single, Belly of the Beast, as well. Um, thank you for sharing your knowledge with Always. us. And uh, it's a great talk. Yeah. Definitely looking forward to our Absolutely. talk next week. Talk about con- dancers, the influential Absolutely. dancers. Absolutely. What is your next podcast about? I know you had something that you had there recently. Do you want to share about that with the audience? Absolutely. Um, just talking about COVID-19 yes. and, uh, again, impact on uh, the lower economic communities. It's just been uh, this pandemic is taking a toll on everyone and everyone's health. But um, there is research to suggest that it's hitting um, our communities a little bit harder. So. Yeah, definitely going to be talking about that All right, about that and too. that's a great subject matter, and I definitely ask you to tune in to every episode, not just the Harlem Renaissance, but every episode, and more importantly, um, <laughs> let's be let's give feedback, and if you ever have an opportunity, you're online and you see Black Canadian, make sure you let her know how much you appreciate what she's doing and sharing the platform for it, for us, and doing that to educate us about all, all type of things that affect our community. <laughs>